a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hi, I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360 and host of A Deeper Look podcast. This season, we're taking a look at the trends that are shaping the future of development. And in this episode, we're talking about what's influencing the future of education. I'm joined by Dr. Warren Simmons, Senior Policy Advisor at the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Warren, can you say a little bit more about your background? Yes. Well, I've been in education reform uh, for you know, 40 years of my career. I've seen a, a lot occur over that time. I've been part of several movements that have not been successful, and I hope to share the lessons uh, of that experience to the listeners in this podcast. But I've worked as a deputy superintendent in school systems, Prince George's County, right outside of Washington, D.C. I have been in the philanthropic world, the Annie Casey Foundation. I've, um, I've been in Washington think tanks at the National Center on Education and the uh, Economy. And I've led the Annenberg Institute for School Reform for 18 years out of Brown University. And so I've participated in education reform uh, from the various vantage points inside schools and school districts, from the philanthropic community side, reform support organizations. And did you work at the Department of Education at one point? I, 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 yes, I guess I did. I left that out. In fact, yeah. I first started my career after I left uh, Cornell University. Uh, I joined the National Institute of Education um, in 1980 and pursued positions at the Army Research Institute and the Office of Education Research and Improvement for the earliest part of my career. So yes, I had a Washington, D.C. based. So you committed your entire life to school reform and education reform in the United States. Primarily in the United States. Which is one of the reasons I think it's important to have you on the Deeper Look podcast. Many of our episodes target international development, so human development challenges in poor countries. One of the important components of the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs, was the notion of universality. Mm -hmm. That human development challenges are not confined to poor countries, mm -hmm. that they are common to all countries. So it will be great to have your perspective on the human development challenges around education reform in the United States, as well as where you see things going. So to mm -hmm. start the conversation, when I read about the trends in education in the United States, I read about the same topics I've been reading about for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, is the shape of things to come in education just like the shape of the way things have been for the last 30 years? Or are there actually new trends that are going to transform or change the way we approach education reform? Well, there are new trends that should change the way we approach education reform. It's interesting that you said that in human development, you've been looking at education development in poor countries. Uh, in the United States, the Southern Education Foundation released a report a few years ago that basically identified that 50% of the 50 million children who attend public schools in the United States come from low-income families and communities. Mm -hmm. And so we are essentially talking about 
an education system that is now serving the vast majority of kids who live in poverty. And so we have an education system that is servicing a poor country within the United States. Right. But the difference would be that the education system we have has much more resources <laughs> than the education systems in sub-Saharan Africa or parts of Southeast Asia on a per capita basis. So yes, so you and but you're thinking about that in a relative sense, yes. It's also the case that in our education system we have built in school funding inequities. The education formulas in most states raise most monies for local education systems out of property taxes. Mm-hmm. And the value of homes, you know, varies widely with the value of property and so poor communities have schools that are historically and chronically underfunded. And so the schools that serve the students who have the greatest need often get the fewest amount of resources given the basics, basis for the funding formulas being in property taxes. So that would be one area of education reform is the financing of education. A major area, but there have been school finance lawsuits going on in most states since I started in education reform. Many of them, even when they get one, remain unresolved. I mean, there are a few positive stories in New Jersey, the Abbott case, in Kentucky during the early days of standards-based reform. In Massachusetts, more money was devoted. But you're talking about more money being raised uh, over a brief period of time that is seeking to overcome the fact that urban districts in particular and districts in poor communities, urban and rural, have been chronically underfunded over 40, 50, 100, 100 years or so. In other words, the facilities are antiquated. The districts have been downsizing in terms of population as more affluent families have moved out, which leads to the concentration of poor students, particularly in urban communities, but also in rural communities. So do you see a trend in the next 10 years that addresses that disparity? The organization that I am working with now, the Partnership for the Future of Learning, it has four strands of work. One is called Shared Policy. One is called Key Places. One, which I lead, is called Shared Systems. And another strand is Shared Story. In the shared policy work, we are going to be focusing lots of attention on school finance equity. But school finance equity is not a technical battle solely. There's lots of evidence of, uh, of inequities and school funding and school funding disparities. It's a political It's battle. a political battle. So in, in essence, the future trend we see is a shift to build up the voice of youth, uh, adult organizing groups to become part of reform. I think in the early part of my career, much of the reform conversation was left in the hands of experts mm-hmm. uh, who debated each other, uh, who were called on in court cases, and, and, and now increasingly, while those experts continue to play an important role, the political clout needed to change policy at the local, state, and, and, and increasingly national levels is going to have to come from grassroots organizing, and they have to become partners in this endeavor along with researchers and policymakers. I remember working for the Boston school system in the mm-hmm. mid-'80s, and at mm-hmm. the time, we were very conscious of the importance of grassroots organizing to influence education policy. Policies we wanted adopted that would benefit our school. 
So that recognition of the importance of grassroots organizing and political movement is not new. But do you see something different now in terms of the potential for grassroots organizing? So, so, um, so grassroots organizing fueled the civil rights movement. Right. Right. Given our ages, we're very familiar with the, the power of that activity. But when you think about education reform and policy in this country since the 1980s and a nation at risk, most of the policymaking has occurred at the national level. Commissions that include business leadership and political leadership have driven the reform conversations and commissions funded by philanthropy. In fact, many of the grassroots organizing efforts were slowly strangled of resources. And so they declined in the power of their voice and in their capacity to inform the debate as policymaking shifted from local levels to national levels. Uh And and you also have to remember there's always been a tension in this country uh, between the role of the national, state, and local policies, right? Uh, So if you think about the South, Many civil rights activists would argue that you don't want local policymaking because local right. policymaking led to segregation right, in, right. Uh, in the yeah. South. In right. international development, one <laughs> of the things that we mm-hmm. recognize is that local communities can own some pretty bad things. Right, exactly. And so there was a shift away from local policymaking as a result of the standards movement, but also some of the distrust forced it in the implementation of, of Brown versus Board. Mm-hmm. Uh, national policy meant to desegregate our schools and enhance equity. Uh, that face barriers at the local and state levels. So in this country, we've always had this tension, and I think that one of the trends that we will see going forward is a rebalancing of advocacy in the 80s and and 90s. Advocacy was dominated at the national and state levels by elite organizations and groups, Council of Great City Schools, National Governors Association, uh, Council of Chief State School Officers, Achieve. There were lots of think tanks and organizations that operated to inform Congress and the President around education policy, which led to things like standards-based reform, No Child Left Behind, uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, and things of that sort. We are now seeing a rebalancing effort to strengthen local voices, particularly youth voice and uh, parents and and community voice fundamentally because the population in urban communities has now shifted in most urban districts. Are, are the vast majority of students are students of color. And uh, you know what's interesting is we have antiquated levels that we need to unpack. I mean, so we typically would describe students as being black and white, right. right? But the black students in Boston today are very different from the black students who were in Boston when you were teaching in Boston, right? right? And the black right. students in New York City today or in Philadelphia and Los Angeles and the brown students are you know, very different than that label was used to describe 30 years ago. And so there are increasing numbers of African immigrants, there are increasing numbers of students from the Caribbean, there are increasing numbers of students from Central and South America and from the Middle East. From uh, South Asia. And South Asia, right? And so uh, saying black and white is less informative and less instructive and many communities now have to delve more deeply to unpack what's underneath race which is a social construct cultural construct anyway 
has to be given more attention. And many communities now have advocacy groups of Southeast Asian students, and I'm from Providence, and we have a wonderful group called the RISE uh, that represents the Southeast Asian community, uh, are now taking stands to say that we are here, uh, we are citizens of the United States, and our schools need to adapt to us. So another trend you know, going forward is not simply thinking about how to better serve low-income communities and low-income families, but also how to make our education system far more culturally responsive and adaptive uh, than it has been and was designed to be in the 20th century. How big a factor do you think demographics is in driving that? Just by the weight of numbers, do you see that tipping yeah. the political balance? <sighs> well, I'm, I'm only chuckling because, unfortunately, numbers alone uh, will not tip the political balance. Political power and activism will. Yes, In but fact, numbers a, can fuel political power. They can, but it's remarkable how demographics have shifted and the people in power continue to hold on to, to their power and make all kinds of policy changes to, to uh, suppress voting rights, to decrease the power of elected officials when they come from a party that is inconsistent with their own. I'm befuddled and flummoxed <laughs> by the extent to which our democracy can be manipulated to actually stave off the demographics. And so I think another reason why community organizing uh, is important and partnership is is important is because in order to get the demographic shifts attended to, people are going to have to organize and, and achieve political power. Right. Demographics alone will not tip the scales. So you just explained that the power elite are very adept at adapting. Well, and we see that internationally. Yeah. Uh, where you can have you know minorities controlling uh, countries for for decades. Right. right? So we have the uh, same phenomenon taking place in our urban communities and nationally and in various regions of the country. So these shifts are not going to occur naturally. And they will be shifts that occur be because people organize to do that and form important partnerships, which is one of the reasons why the Partnership for the Future of Learning is so important and unique. It's a partnership that includes 18 foundations, but also 100 other organizations that range from youth and adult organizing groups to policy think tanks to researchers to the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. So it's a cross-sector partnership because the members of the organization and the, and the partnership understand that we have to form alliances in order to create change that will reflect the growing needs but also the important aspirations. I mean, we often think of poverty as as something that generates needs, but also generates new inspiration, yeah. uh, new talent, yeah, uh, and new aspiration, and new ideas. One of the things that I, I think is important to understand in, in the United States is that as a country, we're going to be increasingly reliant on being able to be globally competitive. And the people who are best positioned to help us remain globally competitive in the future are recent immigrants who understand the language, culture, and habits of other countries much better than most of us who were born and raised in the United States do because we've been isolated and we don't travel internationally and we don't even travel much from state to state or city to city or region to region. Right. And so I think how 
we look at the emerging populations that exist in the United States uh, without using a deficit lens, but instead using an asset lens. They bring multiple languages, they bring rich cultural experiences, they bring international, social, and professional networks that American citizens in the traditional sense, who are born and raised and often don't leave their states and communities, don't have access to. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, uh, but before I do, I want to go back to this notion of cross-sector alliances and partnerships. Mm -hmm. Looking in the future and thinking about the kind of partnerships that you envision over the next 10 years during the 2020s, mm -hmm. do you see a material difference in how we go about it or the kinds of partnerships that come together compared to the past? Because again, we've talked about partnership for a long time. Yeah, um, but we've, in the United States, I think, talked about partnership within sectors. So how can we get the higher education people to partner with the K-12 people? Mm -hmm. and how do you get education researchers to partner with higher ed and K-12? So we've talked about partnership within sectors. Increasingly, we're talking about cross-sector partnerships. Uh, there's a growing understanding, which is long overdue, that intellectual performance, cognitive performance, is not simply cognitive, it's social and cultural. That you speak, you think, you learn, and you perform, not just in some objective cognitive realm, but in a social cultural environment. Mm -hmm. right? And the way to learn how to do that well is to have exposure to the range of contexts in which you're gonna have to be literate in, and you're gonna have to do science in. And that comes from young people at a very early age being exposed to how learning uh, and intellectual performance occurs in settings outside of school. So do you see that as a trend in the future? That's a trend that's um, it's been around for a while. It's just now being um, publicly accepted and acknowledged. So if you think about the work of Jeffrey Canada and the Harlem's Children's right, Zone, yeah. which has occurred over 30 years or so. Uh, and has been copied in many cities, including in Durham, North Carolina, where FHI 360 has its headquarters. Right, yeah. I it's think called, the, the U.S. Uh, government called it the Promise Zones or something. Uh -huh. something that's, uh, but that was a cross-sector development effort. He paid attention to strengthening housing in the Harlem community, strengthening education, to, uh, strengthening recreation and arts programs, and, and that model is you know, now being taken up and instituted nationally. Unfortunately, you know, it's hard to implement a homegrown model using a national framework. Well, it kind of gets uh, back to your earlier point about rebalancing between national exactly. designs and then... You have to build local capacity in order to get that done, and Jeffrey built local capacity. I know him personally, my colleagues, I'll call him Jeffrey. Uh, Jeff you know, built that capacity over a 30-year period of time. It's hard to recreate that in a five-year grant period. Right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and so I think we have to take one of the growing trends is philanthropy and you know, national policy has to think in, in the longer run, beyond these three-year, four-year cycles, and talk about how you support and build capacity and partnerships over 10 years. The other trend I think is important, daycare programs, preschool programs, adult education programs, not only cross-sector, but intergenerational. Huh? Right. Uh, and so increasingly, when you look at education reforms that start in the community and move to schools, if you think of Dream Yard, which is a community-based arts organization in the Bronx or the Lower East Side, 
girls club or if you think about the work in Tower Hamlets in London in the, in the UK you know what you see uh, is the understanding that some of the best resources we have to promote cross-sector development they don't start in the school right. they start in community-based organizations that already have close relationships with adults and families and children that already understand and are making contributions to rebuild communities not simply rebuild individuals so is that recognition that many of the elements of cross-sector alliances needed to transform learning mm-hmm. are going to be found outside of the school, is that well recognized by educators? Uh, it's beginning to be recognized. So do you so see the, that as a potential So trend? the community schools movement, for instance, mm-hmm. led out of the Institute for Educational Leadership, is burgeoning and growing. And it's being taken up primarily in a bottom-up way. Local cities, Hartford, you know, Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey, uh, even New York City, uh, have begun to adopt the community schools model as an important component of reform. The community schools model at this point starts from the school and tries to build out into agencies. Some of the more successful and long-standing models that I've seen like the Harlem Children's Zone, like Dream Yarn, start in the community and build towards the school. Right. Now, I think we will obviously have to do it in both directions, but the ones that start in communities have an advantage over the ones that start with schools. People in the community know the community. They are following the needs and aspirations of the community. They are making cultural adaptations. They do it easily because of their familiarity mm-hmm. over a long period of time. People in schools are challenged to do that. Most of the teachers in many of our districts are majority white. Right. Uh, don't live in the communities. And so trying to build from the schools to make culturally adaptive responses to communities with educators who don't live and don't know that community well is, is problematic. And I think that's why we will see it that community schools movement and integrated development movement occurring in both directions, which is why these cross-sector partnerships are supported. Right, and and the convergence there. I just want to make one comment about your example of the Harlem Children's Zone, about the difficulty of replicating that. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we see, I think, across human development sectors, the challenge of scalability, Mm -hmm. that often the elements that are responsible for something that can be quite successful are tied up with the context and often tied up with some specific individuals who have a unique set of skills to be able to both conceive and then carry out the transformation or the reform Mm -hmm. that is very difficult to replicate. How do we deal with the issue of scalability over the next 10 years? Well, we have to have a conversation about what we're attempting to scale. In the United States, we've attempted to scale programs and schools. Mm-hmm. Rarely do you hear the language of systems and systems building in the United States. I think in other countries, as a matter of fact, that's one of the advantages we can learn from other countries. Because of the, of the weakness of the community-based sector, it requires systems, intervention, and resources devoted from national governments. Mm-hmm. To, to think about capacity building right? mm-hmm. uh, and building up the capacities of uh, NGOs to participate. Here we have a rich set of NGOs that operate without systems. Right. right? And it's the weakness of our systems that make replication and scale difficult. 
And so that's why I'm leading the shared system strand of work mm-hmm. in the Partnership for the Future of Learning, so that we don't fall back into our very familiar stance that the thing we're trying to change in the United States is a school as though they can exist and be expanded and adapted and replicated without regard to the system that they operate in. And so if you think about you know, national policy trying to drive change down to the individual school without thinking about the redesign of state agencies and the redesign of local school districts, it explains the sort of 40-year history of failure of comprehensive school reform designs. Mm-hmm. We keep putting our hands up and saying, well, these things work. Why is it they're never taking the scale? Because we've never thought about, or not until recently, intensively thought about redesigning systems. And in fact, what we've attempted to do is redesign schools around systems. I mean, the charter school movement is a perfect example of that. But even before charter schools, there is an attempt to think about uh, creating special reform pockets. Boston public schools had the Boston pilot schools. Right. And what were the Boston pilot schools? Well, they were given waivers from district policies. Right, it was trying to hack the system. <laughs> right, and they do hack it successfully, but only for a small number of schools, which then gives credence to the rest of the system to continue doing its business right. without being fundamentally redesigned. I want to ask about the role of technology in the in the future. Mm-hmm. We see that reshaping all aspects of our lives. How do you see it fitting into these trends? You've, you've talked about a trend around rebalancing of advocacy and political mobilization uh, more towards local voices, youth and communities and, and away from you know a national centralized planning model. Mm-hmm. You've talked about education systems having to become more culturally adaptable. Mm-hmm. We've talked about harnessing the international talent and potential in immigrant populations that we're not taking full advantage of right now in mm-hmm. terms of powering innovation. And you've talked about cross-sector alliances. Mm-hmm. Does technology come into play in any of those? Yes and no. <laughs> well, the reason why uh, it's, a, it's a mixed answer uh, is because it, it depends on how you think about the purposes of technology. So we've introduced technology in U.S. education in the latter part of the 20th century. Right. And it was used basically to provide an electronic way of delivering outdated, outmoded curriculum. It was just to replicate the existing... Yes, so to replicate the existing system, the existing theories and understandings of learning, and to basically take tracking, take it out of the school, and put it into a computer program. Right? Right. Technology can be a tool that leads to fundamental change, or it can be a tool that sort of reinforces and reifies existing understandings Mm -hmm. of teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. What I see happening in, in the use of technology in communities is that it's being used more adaptively um, because communities are not bound by traditional understandings of teaching and learning in the same way that educators are. Uh, And they aren't driven by the influence in education of large textbook publishing and testing companies. They want the schools to be innovative, but the measures they're going to use to measure the success of the innovation is whether PSAT scores increase SAT scores increase, students take more right. advanced courses. Student achievement. It's all well, about well, student achievement. But, but right. traditional measures right. of student achievement, right. Right. which reinforce the old curriculum and instruction approaches. Absolutely. Right? So if, it's very difficult to be innovative when you're being measured against traditional 
measures that imply an old core curriculum and a procedure through basic higher level skills devoid of any social cultural relevance and context. Right? And so we need to design technologies to reflect new understandings of learning. I think most people still think of basic education as providing a set of standard competencies around literacy, numeracy, knowledge of the world that you live in, that, that sort of thing. So the definition of basic education in most schools still operate is the definition of basic education for the industrial age. Right. I agree with that. Right. Yeah. Uh, what we need to do is redefine what basic education looks like in a creative economy, in an information age. And what that looks like is problem solving, collaboration, using a variety of resources and materials found in schools and in workplace settings, integrated learning and development. Mm -hmm. That's today's form of basic education, which differs fundamentally from the old 20th century industrial age notion of basic education, which is you needed basic literacy, basic numeracy. You need to know how to show up on time and work hard and tolerate a lot of boredom and monotony. So the creative economy requires a redefinition of basic education. Is there a trend in the next 10 years that is going to cause that to happen? Well, you know, the standards movement, which I was an advocate of in the 90s, was a beginning effort to do that. You know, unfortunately, we were more ambitious and adaptive in the development of the standards themselves than we were in the assessments and curriculum tools that were supposed to represent those standards. And so in such you can define what students need to know and be able to do, and you connect that to what their everyday lives are like, unless textbook publishing companies follow that, and unless the assessments follow that, then you'll be using old materials to try to teach new stuff, new stuff as you so elegantly put it. Yeah. And so we've been caught and trapped in using old materials, old assessments, old measures, old indicators to teach new innovative stuff. We have to rethink what those measures are, but there are a lot of powerful entities and organizations that make millions of dollars off of the old stuff, and they're slow to adapt and change. Warren, thank you for this conversation. I want to ask a couple of final questions. One is, as you look out into the future, looking over the next 10 years, we've talked about a number of trends here. Is there a single one that you think is going to be predominant or that is going to capture public attention? So I'm, I'm very excited about the reemergence, and partly due to technology and social media, the importance of arts mm -hmm. in, in learning. Mm -hmm. Arts is a wonderful vehicle for fostering cultural adaptivity and mutual respect across a variety of different kinds of genres. And so uh, I think the arts are something that can bring communities together, that causes communities to examine differences as complementary and enriching rather than differences as reflecting some kind of, of hierarchy. I'm also impressed with the growing understanding of the importance of education occurring within the context of family and community development. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in the era where the idea was to save the child, educate the child so they could leave their families and communities, right? Right. and that creates tensions. I think what we've learned in international development is 
how you will educate children to be a resource to their families and their, their communities. Uh, even if they don't live in the same community anymore, they're still connected, they still invest, uh, they still provide, provide resources. And we've lost that in the United States, which is why the families and communities get threatened by change and see change as something that can, in fact, undermine communities rather than enhance and build them. Right, and that might come back to your earlier point about harnessing the potential in immigrant populations exactly. because they're closer to what you're they talking are closer, about. They are closer to that, and it's a, it's a more of a natural occurrence to those communities. So looking at the future, do you think of yourself as an optimist about seeing uh, continued progress and seeing real reforms gain traction, or are you more of a pessimist? I would say I'm more of a realist now. Uh, that I, you know, in my youth, thought progress would be linear, monotonic increasing function, and now I understand that it can be curvilinear. <laughs> uh, and what gets us back on track is when communities organize and when cross-sector partnerships push against the forces of resistance. And so I am optimistic to the extent that we rebuild uh, refurbish, we renovate uh, families and communities and systems uh, in a way that allows them to co-construct their endeavors. And that will create and sustain the kind of changes that we need, but it's not going to be a linear movement. There will always be forces of resistance from different quarters. Warren, thank you very much for this conversation. As a person who grew up in the community school movement, it warms my heart to hear your optimism about the role of communities, the renewed and rediscovered role of communities, and this convergence between schools and communities in creating the kind of adaptive education system we need for the future. Thanks so much. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for tuning in for this new season. I'd love to hear from you. What do you see in your communities with respect to the development of schools and the role schools are playing? What are the trends that you see shaping education in the future? Share your comments and share this episode with your colleagues and your communities. Tune in next month for another discussion. Subscribe now so you don't miss it.